wrote about the darkness that was going to be experienced spiritually by the people in the land of of Israel, especially for those in Galilee. Uh, he, He said this in response to that, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The light is Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. And so John's gospel even makes this kind of the, the introductory basis of what it says about him. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. How did the light come to bear on the earth? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's this moment when word becomes flesh. It's this moment of the incarnation that Christmas is built around. It really celebrates. Last week, we looked at Christmas and eternity. We looked, we looked at eternity past and eternity future. And, and uh, if you weren't here, yes, I do know that saying eternity past and eternity future makes no sense because there's one eternity. But to us, it's in our past. It is in our unforeseen future. And we looked at the whole spread of, of what that meant within the purpose of God. This morning, we're going to zero in. We're going to zero in on that day, uh, 2,000 and about 20 years ago. We're going to do that by looking at what the Gospel of Luke says. Let, let's pray before we go to this text. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for telling us what you've told us. We thank you, Lord, that Luke was prompted by your spirit to give us really incredible detail and that the truth of what you intended in the incarnation of our Savior is here. And we can see it this morning. We can touch it. We can see the the roots of it (coughs) and what it would do over time. So fill us with curiosity and a hunger to know what you have said and teach us. Please, in your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, as Luke begins, the first verses have to do with preparation and then the the birth of Jesus. Beginning in Luke 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, Luke writes, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. We can stop there just for a moment. We've got the picture in our minds. Uh, We've even heard these words, um, of of course, read in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. This is what Linus reads when he says, this is the meaning of Christmas. The decree goes out from Caesar Augustus, from the most powerful man in the world. He is not the only king. He isn't even the only emperor. But no other empire at the time of Jesus spread over such a broad area and encompassed such uh, nations. Alexander's empire had been bigger, but it had already come and gone. Caesar Augustus is is, uh, 
the, the top of that pile. And he gives an order that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, which I think is rightly understood as all of the Roman Empire. This is the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's, there's just a praise God in this, in this verse. Um, I think God's got a sense of humor, and I think he does things at times just to kind of tweak people centuries in the future. Luke recorded this. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And we know from the time that Jesus was born that he was born before the death of Herod the Great. Herod the Great died in 4 BC. So Quirinius had to be governor before 4 BC. But for centuries, scholars have been saying all of the records say that Quirinius was governor in 6 AD, not 4 BC. And so this is wrong. This is just clearly wrong. Luke miffed it. He just made a mistake. So how can the Bible be true? In the last decade or two, uh, tablets have been found identifying Quirinius as governor twice. Once toward the end of the life of Herod the Great, which would encompass 4 to 5 BC, the time that we're talking about with the birth of Jesus, and then uh, in 6 AD. So it's like the Lord said, yeah, I'm just going to put this in the scripture to confuse everybody, and then I'll let the archaeological details be hidden for 18 or 19 centuries. Let them come face to face with the fact that I know what I'm talking about. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. We have this this reduction that's taking place. It goes out to the entire empire. The order goes from Caesar Augustus to Quirinius. Uh, Syria is what was called an imperial province, and so it's under the direct control of the emperor. And then it goes from Syria to the little tiny province of Eudea. Eudea was a made-up word. It, it was made up to represent Judea and Galilee and Idumea. It, it never actually a place called Eudea. And those three little spots on the map were the smallest imperial province in the Roman Empire. They were so small that the reason Quirinius is mentioned as governor of Syria is that at the time the, the, there was no governor in Judea. Pontius Pilate was the governor. Remember when Jesus was arrested, the first governor was a man named Caponius. He wasn't uh, appointed till 6 or 7 AD. It's such a little place that they're ruling it from remote control. We have this statement from Caesar Augustus. It comes to Quirinius, and everybody had on his way to register for the census, each to his own city, and then we come to Joseph. We've narrowed down from Caesar Augustus to Quirinius to Joseph. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and who was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. So we've gone from Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world at the time, to a newborn, nameless baby boy. Jesus was not formally named until the day of his circumcision when he was eight days old. When our children were born, when Kevin was born, we had... Uh, We had a boy's name. We had a girl's name picked out. When he was born, we said, yep, it's Kevin Michael. When Sarah was born, we had 
uh, a boy's name and a girl's name. Yep, it's Sarah Elizabeth. And, uh, and we only chose Grace for Grace. Grace Allison was always going to be Grace Allison, so fortunately she was a girl. Well, you were going to be Jennifer Grace quickly, but that didn't last too long. It became Grace Allison pretty quick. But they didn't do that. It's not that the baby was born and Joseph looked at Mary and said, hey, let's name him Jesus. At that point, he's unnamed. And it's not until they go to the temple for the circumcision, we see that in verse 21. When eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the, the, uh, the name given by the angel before, before he was conceived in the womb. So the most powerful man on the face of the earth to the most insignificant, weak, fragile, powerless creature on earth, a newborn baby. It's also, Luke's also given us this move from Rome, which is the seat of power of the most powerful nation on the earth, massive city, couple of million residents, down to the imperial province of Syria, which was not a huge province, but not tiny, down into this little province of, uh, of uh, Iduea, and then down within that province to Judea, which is just this little something that's smaller than Madison County. And then finally to Bethlehem, a town of about 300 at the time. And then ending in a manger, ending in a wooden box. So in just, just a few verses, we go from the bright shining city on seven hills, the city of Rome, the city where all the power is, the city where all the wealth is, the city where all the, every, all the education is, the city where everything stems from. And we've come down to a little plain, really worthless wooden box. If, if an ox stepped on a manger and destroyed it, nobody wept. They just hammered a new one together. The key statement in these first seven verses, in fact, the key statement in, in the, the 20 verses we're going to look at is the first phrase in verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son. This, this is the Savior. This is Jesus being born. This is the Son of God that she had conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit nine months before being born. And then what happens? Lights, fireworks, choirs, angels. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. And she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the, in the inn. I assume that she wiped him off first and probably nursed him. But it's just an absolutely common experience. Nothing at that, nothing for Joseph and Mary would have been unusual except it was their first child. Nobody observing it, nobody who came by later. There were some people who came by to visit later. We'll see them in a few minutes. Nobody would have looked at that scene and said, this is different. Something has happened here. This is an event. This, this is the event of all events. This is the event that's going to make the difference. What you have is uh, a, a young father who is confused and maybe a little sick to his stomach and trying to figure out all this stuff and what's he going to do now. <coughs> you have a young mom who's exhausted and sore, and you have a baby swaddled up, wrapped tight, 
probably cleaned first, probably nursed, but then laid down to sleep. We don't, we're not told exactly when during the day Jesus was born. The angels appeared to the shepherds at night, and the angel's message was, today in the city of David has been born to you a Savior. So we're not told when. If Jesus was born during the daytime, he's got his eyes squeezed shut against the light. That's the scene. But that's not the totality of what God is doing. And so there is an announcement that takes place. There is an event that takes place. Beginning at verse 8, Luke writes, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. The original text says that they were frightened with fear. It just ran all the way through them. If you had cut them, fear would have come out of their their skin. They're minding their own business. They're laying out in the fields at night. Um, They're watching over sheep. Um, uh, We've got a a man in our church in in Creighton, and they have sheep. They've got uh, 30 or 40 head that, oddly enough, enough are, are pets for their kids. They don't plan on eating any of them, which I think is a terrible loss of an opportunity actually he was he was telling us telling me that uh at one time they had pigs and his older daughter who's probably seven or eight now he saw her leaning over whispering to the piglets and he just thought oh no we can't kill them now he went over and what she was saying is grow up little piggy so we can make you bacon so evidently she was okay with the pigs becoming breakfast. The shepherds are out at night. It's not deep winter because it's, it's fairly cold there. Uh, it's possible that it was the fall. The animals are asleep. Sheep sleep kind of bundled up and cuddled together, and they're fairly quiet and fairly placid at night. The shepherds are keeping watch over the flock. The flock's not going to do anything. They're just... Being on the lookout for predators, wolves maybe, or dogs, or thieves who would come by and steal. But they don't expect much to happen. It's a quiet area. They're just quietly talking, maybe starting to drift off to sleep, looking at the stars in the sky. And all of a sudden, there is light. Light, not lightning. Not a flash of light, but light. And there's a person standing in that light. There is an angel standing in that light. And the glory of God is illuminating everything around them. And so there's at least two reasons for, the, for their fear. One reason is that they just did not expect this. And there's, there's no such thing as an artificial sun. They had lights, they had candles, they had lanterns, but nothing that could compete with daylight. But this is not just light startling them when it, they didn't expect it. This is the glory of God. And the glory of God, when it flashes into the, the awareness of people, when God manifests himself in that way, the response everybody has is one of fear because they know that they're sinful. It's what Isaiah experiences in his, his vision of the temple. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. They are absolutely terrified because of their sinfulness, because of the startling experience. 
But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Now he doesn't say, do not be afraid. You're good people. Do not be afraid. God is love. Do not be afraid. God isn't worried about your sins. He says, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord, a savior, a savior. As the weight of your sins and the reality of of who you are sinks into you and you can no longer ignore it. And you're filled with this fearful awareness of who you are. This is the moment where God is announcing to you good news of great joy that a Savior has been born. The Savior is Christ. That means uh, anointed one. The Hebrew word would be Messiah. The Greek word is Christos, so Christ. The anointed one, God's chosen one. This is the one God intended to send. This is the one God has sent. This is the one that God has has uh, commissioned for this purpose. In, in nine or ten days, grace is going to raise her right hand and take an oath. That, that's the sense that, that she's going to be anointed for that work as a member of the Air Force. Jesus raised his right hand and was anointed by the Father for this work. And he is the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. The word Lord is what they use to translate the word Yahweh. This this is God in human flesh. There has been born for you a Savior, a Redeemer, who is the anointed one of God and who is himself God in human flesh. That's good news of great joy. And it's good news of great joy even for you shepherds. Not just the holy ones, not just the special ones, not just the religious ones, not just the ones who are really at the top of the pile for all people. Good news for all people. Certainly good news for all kinds of people, from kings to shepherds. I don't think that you would find a legal occupation in Israel that was looked down on more than being a shepherd, maybe being a tax collector. But shepherds were not highly thought of people. They weren't typically educated. Quite often, shepherds were younger teenage boys and elderly men past the age of being able to work. They weren't often allowed to give testimony in court because they were generally thought to be unreliable. And these are the people that, that the father chooses to make this announcement to. Interestingly enough, the news of the resurrection first comes to a group of women who also would not have been allowed to give testimony, who were also not at the highest places of society. See, there is born for us a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this is good news of great joy for all kinds of people. All kinds of people. How are we going to know that this is true? This is huge. The shepherds are, if they could think, and I don't know that they could think, but if they could think, they would be wondering, okay, this is big. This is the biggest thing God has ever done. This is bigger than Moses. This is bigger than the Red Sea. This is bigger than than King David. This is the biggest thing God has ever done. How do we know? The angel says, this will be a sign for you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, a baby wrapped in cloths is not in the least surprising. We, we kind of bundled our kids up, and uh, a lot of people we know, our grandkids were kind of bundled up. You get a newborn baby, they, don't, they can't control themselves, they don't know what to do with themselves, they'll actually wake themselves up. But boy, you wrap them up nice and snug, and, and they don't wake themselves up, they don't disturb themselves, it just kind of, it just kind of gentles them to sleep. So that's, that's not at all unusual. But a baby in a manger is unusual. A baby in a manger is unusual. Now, historically, it, it's very likely that babies typically were born in the animal area of a, of a home. Uh, if you imagine a, a home having two levels and a flat roof, the, the bottom level was the kitchen area and a storage area. The upper level was where uh, people slept and perhaps a, a working area if, if you're weaving. Well, down on that bottom area within the courtyard was a little space for a, a few animals, for a couple of sheep maybe, two or three sheep, maybe for a donkey, whatever you might happen to have. Not a huge herd, of course, but almost everybody had some kind of a small collection of animals. And they were there. They, they were just kind of there with, with everybody else. And so it was fairly common, at least in some places, that when a woman went into labor and was ready to give birth, she would go to that part to give birth because it's hay everywhere on the floor. I don't just use your imagination. And then they would take the baby and they would go back upstairs. They would go back into the home. But there's no room for Jesus, and so the only place to put him is in, is in the manger. Uh, these, these places were often kind of open where the animals were. They were open to the outside on, on one wall. And so I imagine, I don't know, but I would imagine the manger would be at the back wall to protect it from rain, to protect it from the elements. And so the baby at the back wall is as protected as he can be. This requires some response, some underlining and emphasizing from heaven. So verse 13 says, Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God (coughs) and saying, not singing, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on peace earth and on peace earth among men and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. This is a message of God's glory first and then peace among those with whom God is pleased. And, and boom, just like that, verse 15 says, the angel, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven. So this just, this just flicks off. This just goes away. There's this blinding light that's almost physical. You can almost touch it, and it surrounds them. It passes through them. It reveals their sin. They hear this message that is unlike any message they've ever heard. They're given this promise that that there's a sign, and the sign is a newborn baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. This massive multitude of angels appear, and they give a doxology to God, a, a statement of praise to God, and then it's gone. It's dark again. And it's quiet. And, and evidently they didn't have to chase animals down, so while the shepherds were terribly frightened, the sheep didn't wake up. But they immediately began to say to each other, let us go straight to Bethlehem 
then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord made known to us. And they head off to Bethlehem. Verse 16, they came in a hurry. They found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And we don't often think about this. There are 300 people in in Bethlehem, 300 men is probably what that would mean. And, and so there's, there's 100 or 200 dwellings, perhaps, small homes kind of in this, this little cluster. And you're going to go find a baby in a manger in the dark. They weren't given an address. And so the, the text where it says they found their way to Mary and Joseph, the sense is that they searched for them and found them. How do you search for a baby lying in a manger in the middle of the night without getting shot? Well, speared. I think they walked down the streets of Bethlehem and just listened at the gates. Every courtyard's got a little gate. They just listen. And maybe as they're walking along, they pass some people who are out, and those people said, well, those are shepherds. What are they doing? And they're just kind of going up and listening. And then maybe they, I don't know, maybe they, they got to a gate and they, they listened and they could hear some whispering in the courtyard. And they, they peeked over and they can see somebody over in this animal area. And they creak the gate open and they go in and the people with them kind of go in and they find the baby just as they were told, laying in the manger. And when they see them, when they actually find them, verse 17 says, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. We were out there minding our own business, laying, laying around, getting ready to go to sleep. Boom, light, glory of God. Boy, we were terrified at that. And then the angel said, don't be afraid for I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all the people, which is for us as shepherds. We get that too. It's for all people that there has been born for you this day in the city of David. That's here, Bethlehem, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. There he is. He's wrapped in cloths. He's lying in a manger. That's what we were told. That's all they have to say. That's, that's what they say. This is the statement that we are given. Here's the underline of it. Here's the emphasis of it. That's what God said. And there's three responses. There's three responses. Verse 18 says, all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. And uh, all who heard it couldn't be the shepherds. Um, Mary has her own response in verse 19. So all probably isn't Joseph by himself. I think what's likely is that there were either people there with the family after the birth of of the baby. They had stopped by. They'd heard a baby had been born. Or there are people who just saw the shepherds kind of being weird and followed them in. But those people wonder at the things which were told them by the shepherds. That word wondered means that they were amazed. It means that they were startled, that they were stunned. It doesn't necessarily mean good. It's the same word that's used later on when Jesus calms the sea and his, it says his disciples marveled at him and said, what kind of a man is this? It's that. It's wow, I've just been thrown into confusion. I don't know what to do with this. Some people were really stunned by what Jesus had said during the course of his ministry. Others were offended. And so here, it may be the same thing where you have people who are thrilled 
This is amazing. You have people who are confused. What, what do you mean? What's going on here? What are you talking about? You have other people who are suspicious. Really, there's, there's got to be some trick to this. But they're all amazed. We're not told what Joseph thought. We are told in verse 19 that Mary treasured all of these things, pondering them in her heart. These words go far beyond that night. The word treasured has the sense that she carefully memorized what was being said. (coughs) She didn't simply value those words, treasuring them, but she treated them as treasures. She preserved them and she protected them. And when it says she pondered them, the sense is that she pondered them for a long time. She meditated on them. She rolled them over in her head. She thought about them again and again and again. This is really kind of Luke's commentary on how Mary responded, hearing the story. Now, if Mary was was in her mid-teens when Jesus was born, which seems to be kind of the consensus that she was 14, 15, 16, that means that she would have been her mid, in her mid-40s 30 years later when he suffers and dies and rises from the dead. And when Luke starts traveling with, with the Apostle Paul, she's only 60 or 65. And if the Lord had granted her length of years, if she hadn't suffered some sort of an accident and came from good stock, she very well could have been alive. So when Luke begins traveling with Paul and they make a trip to Jerusalem, there's Mary. Luke's already said in the opening words of this gospel, I've been careful to get all of these details right from the, from the beginning uh, from people who are eyewitnesses. And so I can imagine them being in, in Jerusalem and, and Luke sitting down with Mary and saying, what happened that night? And Mary's saying, well, why? And, and Luke's saying, well, y- you know, when Matthew wrote his gospel, it, it was over and done before you knew it. Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took Mary as his wife, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Boom. Matthew gets it done in a, in a single statement in a verse. Luke says, oh, no, there's more to this story. I want to know more. And Mary says, well, I knew that something was up. We had the angelic visit, and then the shepherds came and I really thought about what they said, and I memorized, I can tell you exactly what they said. I can tell you the look on their face. I've thought about that night over and over and over again. And we have to think about this, too. For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, Mary's got no idea what all of that means. The shepherds had no idea how saving would come about. Nobody connected Isaiah 53 and the suffering Savior to the Messiah during Jesus' time. The Jews simply didn't have that idea. Certainly the shepherds didn't. Certainly Mary didn't. Jesus begins his his ministry, and he's not being received with great love and great acclaim. He's been being received by the authorities, at least, with anger and jealousy. There was a point where, and maybe Mary even told Luke this, there was a point where Mary is so concerned about what Jesus is doing that, that she and, and, her, and her other sons think that Jesus had gone around to bend a little bit. His cheese has slipped off its cracker. And they go to get him and bring him home. And he refuses. And then Jesus dies on the cross and she's there. Suffering 
what no mother in the world should ever suffer. And then she sees him risen from the dead. And she believes. And we know that she believes because in Acts chapter 1, when the 120 are gathered in the upper room to pray prior to Pentecost, she's with them. Luke is really careful to say she's with them. See, she made this mental switch, this spiritual switch, that Jesus is not just her son, he is her savior. And her love for him as her son is eclipsed by, not replaced by, but eclipsed by her faith in him as her Lord. And she spent her whole life, I think, is what we're being told, pondering. The enormity of what this meant. But the shepherds end the story, which from a... From a, a, a the point of view of literature, the point of view of a narrative. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's really where it should end. That's just where the passage should end. That just, that's just poignant. That's the mother of the baby. Brings it back to her. It kind of all started with her. The angel comes to her in chapter 1. But Luke has to tell us, The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just, ha- just as had been told them. And it's important to Luke to tell us that. It's important that the shepherds are, are seen to have heard the message and had seen the baby and that their response was not wondering and amazement and being stunned. Their, their response was not treasuring and pondering. Their response is to glorify God and to praise him because there is a savior born for you today who is Christ the Lord. And it's good news of great joy for all the people, including you. Nobody gave these men good news. But their creator had done something for them. As we bring this home and think about application, think about how this impacts us and how we can compare it to our lives. I, I think we have to just honestly say none of us can, can place ourselves in the position of Joseph or Mary. They were in utterly unique positions. Lots of parents, yeah, lots of grandparents, husbands, wives, moms, dads, yeah, but not this way. This really was unique. The primary comparison is between the, the visitors from verse 18 and the shepherds from verse 20. Most of the people in Jesus' time rejected him. Most of the people during his ministry rejected him. After he was raised from the dead, you know, uh, Paul makes the point that he, he appeared in, in, in detail. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about him appearing to different groups of people at one point, 500, more than 500 at one time. <coughs> That preaching and that news went through Jerusalem. There were immediately healings in the name of Jesus and miracles in the name of Jesus that were really assigned to the people of Israel and certainly the people in Jerusalem. Uh, He is gone because he ascended, but his power remains and his message remains, and it was rejected. It was rejected in the majority of the Gentile world, and it continues to be largely rejected rejected today how dare anybody say that we need a savior there has been born this day for you a savior wait a second 
What do you mean a savior? I don't need a savior. He's the anointed one. He's Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. Wait a second. You're saying Jesus is the only way, the only way God is approved? Yes. And he's the Lord. Oh, no, no. I don't have to obey. I don't have to bow my knee. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You, you bow your knee here or you bow your knee on, the, knee on the day of judgment. You have to bow your knee. He's Lord. He is Lord, and he's, he's God in human flesh. He's not just a good man. He is God Almighty. And so people accuse us of being narrow, of being bigoted, of, of being prejudicial, as though this is our message, as though we invented this, as though we looked at other people and said, how can we position ourselves as the heroes and them as the losers and then go condemn them with a message? We're not doing that. We're simply saying, look, this is what God has said in his word. This is what the word of God says. I didn't make this up. I couldn't make this up if I'd tried. If I was making this up, the angel would appear to the shepherds and said, I bring you good news. Don't worry about your life. It's all good. That's the message we want so that we can have our sin and we can have that without any fear or guilt. Our message is that there's good news of great joy for all sorts of people. But the reality is, is that most people reject that message. The truth is, the more sinful the soul, the harder the heart, the deeper that person is lost in the chains of sin, the better the good news is, the more powerful it is. You remember that the Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And he also said that he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And that he gladly stood before the emperor to share Christ with that man. With Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus, we know him as Nero. And Paul wasn't going to go stand before Nero and pronounce the judgment of God on Nero for persecuting the church and and Nero's persecution of the church was unparalleled by any other emperor. He had Christians crucified and then set on fire to light his gardens at night. Paul stood in front of him because he said, I'm the chief of sinners because I persecuted the church and the Savior had mercy on me and I'm here to tell you that there is good news of great joy for all people including you, if you'll believe it. But for my part, I want to be like the shepherds. I want to be like the shepherds. I'm no hero. I just want to be like the shepherds. I've heard good news of great joy that's for all people, and that includes me. I have been promised a Savior who is Christ the Lord who is given to us, and the Lord has confirmed that through his birth, through his death, and through his resurrection. It's really interesting. I know, we know, you all know far more about who Jesus is and what he did, to, to, what he did and, and how he died and the significance of his resurrection and his, his lordship and saving in the last two millennia. You know infinitely more than that than the shepherds ever knew. Many of these men probably died before Jesus ever began his public ministry. 
They had no idea. How could they go away glorifying and praising God? They didn't know how they were going to be saved, but they knew that they had a Savior. The how wasn't their problem. The how was God's problem. The Lord brought me to him 40 years ago. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. He has promised to continue to sanctify me and build me over time during the rest of my life. I don't know how he does that. I know it's through the, 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 the means of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, but I don't know how he changes me because he's changing my leopard spots. He's transforming me. I don't know how he does it. I really don't. I, I know the material he uses, the raw material, and I know the power is the Holy Spirit. He has promised to keep me until the day of salvation, and I don't know how he does that. And he's promised to preserve me for all eternity, and I don't know how he's going to do that. So I really have a lot in common with the shepherds. And it seems like what I can do today is I can go away and say, I don't know how God is going to do this. And because I don't know how God's going to do this, I can't trust that he will. Or I can be like the shepherds and say, I've got no idea how, but he will. And that's enough reason for glory. That's enough reason to praise his name. I want to go home today from here glorifying God and praising his name because he has made these promises content to let him work out the hows and the wheres and the why fors over the rest of my life, however long that is, knowing that he will not fail. And my prayer is that you will have that same shepherd's heart yourselves. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Such a tremendous event that the word became flesh and Mary gave birth to her firstborn child and that was the same event. We know so much more than <coughs> the shepherds did. We know more than Joseph and Mary did in many ways. And yet we don't... We, we couldn't begin to say that we have enough knowledge to know it all. We are still left with living by faith and not by sight. Sight says, prove it to me, show it to me, let me see it work, give me a sample. Faith says, Lord, I don't know how you are continuing to hold on to me and sanctify me. And I don't know how you're going to keep me for the rest of my life, much less all of eternity, but you have promised to do exactly that, and I believe that promise. And so, Lord, grant us that, that heart of, of glorifying you and praising your name today. Remind us as we come to Christmas Day, and celebrate with one another and enjoy one another. That there is a, a work that you have done that no Christmas tree and no presents can begin to compare to. 
We thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.